Will Thomas hasn't been able to walk since January 2005, when some guys he had a beef with shot five bullets into his body. For a while after that, he says he gave up, got angry, shut down. But then he got determined, and that helped him laugh again. That comes out best when he tells a story about falling out of his wheelchair, which he takes down a flight of stairs every day. Probably get myself together about that means something to eat. Slide down the stairs, off the rail, boom, 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 by myself. Out of the chair? No, nah, in, in the, the chair. chair. Okay. Yeah, lean forward, hold on to the rail, boom, one step at a time, going backwards, boom, boom. Go down the stairs right there. I go down fast, go down slow. One hand on my phone, talking snap. That, that, see, that's how I be falling right there, <laughs> trying to be show off. Like, like, yeah, yeah, I'm coming down the stairs right now. The last time I feel, I fell in like super slow motion. It took me like three and a half minutes to fall. And I did it so cool, like so nonchalant. <laughs> like they, the person I was on the phone with, they couldn't even believe I fell. Like, man, I think I'm about to fall. Man, I'm about to fall. Man, I'm falling. <laughs> I didn't fail, man. Like, man, where you at now? I'm on the ground. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> on the ground. You, you tell stories well. <laughs> nah, that's facts, man. <laughs> He's fallen a lot, he says, but he keeps getting back up. From the team that brought you accused in collaboration with The Trace, this is Aftermath, a podcast about gunshot survivors. I'm Amber Hunt. When we reporters cover mass shootings, we face criticism. Yes, that mass shooting was tragic, but what about the violence that happens every single day in cities across America? There might be twice as many people shot overnight in any given city as there were in that single incident you've got splashed all over the front page. Race plays a role in the critiques, too. Some say we devote more newsprint and airtime to violence against whites than minorities. I don't argue this. It's honestly been a recurring argument in a lot of newsrooms nationwide. Will is precisely one of those stories we don't cover much. He's African-American and was raised in a single-parent home that didn't have a ton of money. Those facts about him are relevant when talking about gun violence. Statistically, if you're poor, if you've got one parent, if you're black, you're more likely to be the victim of violent crime in America. I'm always reluctant to spend much time on statistics because those matter less to me than the humans the numbers represent. But here are a few for good measure. African Americans make up 14% of the U.S. population, but are the victims in more than half of all gun homicides. Black men are 13 times more likely to be fatally shot than white men. That's the national average. Inquirer reporter James Pilcher took a look at 2015's shootings and found that 90% of Cincinnati's victims that year were black. 90% were male. The average age was 29 years old. Here's a snippet from the video that ran with that story. We don't judge them. You know, you say drug dealers. Okay, I see someone who's trying to survive. You know, many times they have placed themselves, maybe because of circumstances, in a box that they can't see outside of that box. They've quit school at an early age. They have no marketable skills. Uh, their mamas and their daddies, they don't own businesses and corporations where, you know, as soon as they finish school, they can step right into it. Each generation, it appears that we're starting from scratch. 
The video opens with an African-American activist pushing a casket through Avondale, one of Cincinnati's 52 neighborhoods, which historically ranks as the area's most dangerous. In the video, you see the man positioning the casket on a corner next to handmade memorials with pictures of the city's shooting victims. Most of the faces are not white. This isn't unique to Cincinnati, but it's worth noting that this area has a pretty storied relationship with race, one that I don't think outsiders would know much about. The most recent race riots here were in 2001. That's less than a generation ago. Mark Kernute covers race for the Enquirer. As he sees it, the story here is the same as it is everywhere. Cincinnati proper is a city of 297,000 people, 46% uh, of whom are African-American. So you have a much smaller black community than Chicago, Detroit, New York, Boston, Philadelphia, all those other cities. But I would suggest probably on a per capita scale, sadly, the, the gun violence, uh, fatal, non-fatal shootings are, are on a par for the city's population. I consider this backdrop for this episode because Will's shooting is exactly the type we journalists are accused of ignoring. And I want to be clear, we did ignore it. Most of the shootings discussed in this series were covered by at least the local and sometimes the national media. Will's was not. His was just one of the 450 to 500 non-fatal shootings in Cincinnati that year only a fraction of which were reported either by my newspaper or by the local TV stations. So I want to take a moment here in this episode that touches on race to say what I hope is obvious, that there's always a mother or a father or a sister or a friend who's hurt or scared or grieving, no matter the circumstance, and certainly no matter the race. Will's mother can't speak now about what she endured. She died in 2006. But I have talked to other mothers for this project, and the words of one in particular stuck with me. Do you see anyone on the media talking about day-to-day -day shootings? Chicago gets how many shootings a day? D.C. gets how many shootings? When the victims are black, brown, yellow, beige, and red, they aren't given the same respect and dignity. Their stories are not told. That's Nardine Jeffries, whose voice you heard in episode six. Her daughter, Brichelle Jones, was killed in the shooting that injured Rashana Brown as the girls gathered with friends on a D.C. corner near their homes. Nardine talked to me about what it's like as an African-American mom to watch as children of color are overlooked while we in the media seem to swarm stories involving white children. Those, two are absolutely tragedies, she says. But it's not a bigger tragedy than what black people experience when their loved ones are slaughtered. And I think it's just really sad because, unfortunately, we are still looked at as less than human. I'm supposed to hurt less because my child was black? Yeah. I'm supposed to be used to this? I'm not. I've never experienced this. We all bleed red, she says. We'd be better off if we remembered that. The team at Aftermath is grateful to have Quip as a sponsor of the show. When you think of the things you do every day, brushing your teeth probably isn't top of mind. But for something that's so important to your health, it really should be. That's why Quip wants to help you brush better. Quip. 
that's spelled Q-U-I-P, is the sleek new electric toothbrush that's a fraction of the cost of bulkier brushes while still packing just the right amount of vibrations to clean your teeth. I got mine in the copper metal color. It's really cute, and it has saved me from myself by keeping me from getting lax on my toothbrushing habits. Quip's subscription plan refreshes your brush on a dentist-recommended schedule, delivering new brush heads every three months for just $5, including free shipping worldwide. So do what I did and get Quip. Quip starts at just $25, and if you go to getquip.com slash aftermath right now, you'll get your first refill pack free with a Quip electric toothbrush. That's your first refill pack free at getquip.com slash aftermath. That's spelled G-E-T-Q-U-I-P dot com slash aftermath. Will's different than a lot of the people we've interviewed. He's almost nonchalant about his injury. He can sometimes feel superficial when he's talking about it. He cloaks a lot in his humor and his charm. It was sometimes easy to forget during our interview that we were there discussing the bullet that stole his legs. I mean, this is a guy who opened his door to journalists asking about that time he nearly died. And this is how he began. We got to do a mic check, mic, mic check, mic check. <laughs> now you sounding good. You sense that maybe he doesn't feel like he has a right to be mad about his predicament because he's done bad things, too. And maybe keeping things light and airy is the best way for him to cope. He actually addresses this at one point, saying... I can sit back and laugh at it now. Everybody always be thinking I'd be sensitive. Man, you can, you can talk about that, then it go bring up no old feelings, you go start crying. <laughs> like, nah, man, I'm happy to be here. He's happy now, anyway. He says it wasn't always that way. Around the time of those aforementioned 2001 race riots, Will was a teenager living about four miles away from the heart of that chaos near Millvale, a neighborhood he describes as... Kind of rough area. A lot of poverty, a lot of crime, a lot of negative people, a lot of negative things going on down there. It's harder than any other part of the, you know, city that, I ain't gonna say it's the, the roughest or the toughest or nothing like that, but it, it's definitely a challenge. His assessment is fair. Objectively speaking, Millville isn't the roughest neighborhood. On any given year, it doesn't even rank in the top five most dangerous Cincinnati neighborhoods, in fact. But he's also right that it's rougher than average. Most people there earn less money, have less education, and are more likely to live in a single-parent home than the rest of the city. All of this put Will at higher risk, but his mom really tried to counteract it. He considers his childhood home life pretty stable. Mom put him in sports, she taught him manners and respect. He remembers his childhood as being pretty nice on the whole. I really wasn't into much negativity until maybe like 15. 16, I start mingling around with the wrong crowd, stop playing sports, stop going to school. And that's probably when like, my uh, life really kind of took a, a change for the worse. The kids he had met lived in his neighborhood. His mom knew they were trouble and tried to warn him, tried to keep him on the right path. Of course, he didn't approve of it, but... You know, at the age that I was at, like it was, it really wasn't no turning back. So she had to basically just 
pray and hope that, you know, hope for the best and hope I stay out of trouble. You know how, you know how hard that is. Like, I had to apologize to her many a nights and just let her know, like, it really wasn't your fault. Like, like you did your job as raising me as a good person. Like, I just had a bad choice of friends that I, I chose to hang around with. And at the end of the day, it caught up with me. I mean, of course she tried to talk to me, but at that point in my time of my life, it really wasn't sinking into my head. Like, I really, it wasn't something I was trying to hear. You know, I had to learn on my own. I had to bump my head for myself. For Will, bumping his head meant selling drugs. He has several drug citations on his criminal record through the Hamilton County Courthouse. After a while, the citations graduated to felony charges. Crack cocaine is listed as the drug of choice on most of the records. He wasn't a member of a gang per se, but that's a bit of a semantics issue. I'm more of a territorial person, like, I'm not saying that that's better. Will and his friends guarded their turf. The conflicts that arose were over things like... Uh, selling drugs, uh, different females, uh, just not liking people, just just being young and having guns and having money and just living life. You know, it really wasn't nothing really too serious. It, it really could, it should have escalated to how it escalated it too. The climax came January 3rd, 2005, when Will was a 23-year-old father of one daughter with a son on the way. The reasons behind what happened that day are tough to make sense of, like a lot of the shootings I've covered. Will tries to sum it up as succinctly as he can. To make a long story short, we had some issues with some guys from down the way, around like on Green Street or somewhere down there. Uh, we was looking for them, they were looking for us. You know, it was, it was a baby war going on, like, and uh, they lost some people. We ended up losing some people. Uh, it died down for a little minute. I seen one of the girls, one of, one of the guys' girls out there in my neighborhood, was talking crazy to him, probably threw some chili on her or something like that. Uh, and the guys came back looking for me. When they came back looking for me, I was in the car, I was leaving actually, and I seen them pointing, trying to run in somebody else's house. And I jumped out the car. When I jumped out the car, I tried to run up on them. And like four guys just started shooting. And I fell and they took off. Simple as that. Did you have a gun on you? <laughs> I mean, I want to be honest about stuff, right? I mean, because when no, you're just, I did. you didn't really, because when you're run, you're running up on four guys unarmed. Yeah, I could fight, but the, the, the person it, it don't really sound logical. I'm so used to carrying guns that sometimes I be having I don't be having them, and I think I be having them. But okay. the person who I was with they had no license, no insurance. They was taking me to go get something to wear, so they was they don't really want to ride with a lot of stuff on them. So of course I boom. He pantomimes pulling a gun from his waistband and setting it down. But the mentality that I got, like, I'm not really, you know, they say, uh, <clears throat> bad stand, good run. I was too tough for my own nature. So it was, it is what it is. If you miss that, he said, bad stand, good run. He really likes proverbs. He quotes four or five of them during our interview. And this time he's referring to one that once was, 
a gallant retreat is better than a bad stand, and then got modernized to a good run is better than a bad stand. Will shortened it further. However you phrase it, what it means is he charged when he probably should have fled. Not that he regrets this, exactly. By the time that moment arrived, when the baby war had escalated and he had thrown some chili on another guy's girl and people had died, he figures there was no more room to turn back. He finds a way to justify how reckless it sounds in hindsight to have run toward four armed men. Like I said, um, if I wouldn't have got out that car, though, I probably, I probably wouldn't have be here right now because I know all my shots would have been like up on my, my body. Like they hit me on the leg, in the stomach, in the side, and twice in the back. So it could have been worse, should I say. Is that five shots? Yes, ma'am. That's pretty amazing to survive five bullets, huh? I know people that survive more. I've met a few, but only through my work. For some people, this is par for the course in their neighborhoods. As Will lay on the ground near his car, he knew he had been shot, even though he couldn't feel it. I was like, I was numb. I didn't feel nothing. I didn't feel not one bullet. Like, it was like, I couldn't believe it. Like, when this happened, it was just like a, a tingly feeling, like I was laying on the ground. It just so happened that there was a new mother living near the shooting site. If you've had a baby, you might remember a nurse coming by your house for a checkup within a few days of you coming home from the hospital. By some stroke of luck, just such a nurse was at the new mother's house at the moment Will was shot, and she rushed to his side. He came straight outside after cherry the gun shots, like put the blankets above me, pushed me back down because I kept on trying to get back up. Like I didn't know I was paralyzed or nothing like that, so I kept on trying to get back up. They kept on putting me down. It was like January the 3rd, so it was kind of cold outside, which benefited me better because it made my blood thick, so I didn't bleed a lot. He remembers. For a minute, I did kind of panic, like, like, oh, man, this is how I'm going to go. But he managed to calm himself, in part because he had seen so many people shot in front of him. He could talk himself down. So I, I was basically just telling myself, like, man, just keep breathing, like, keep breathing. He underwent surgery straight away, but none of the bullets were removed. It was safer to leave them in Will's body than to take them out, at least at first. When he woke up, he was greeted by a police detective asking him questions about who pulled the trigger. Will wasn't in a talkative mood. Soon, he was taken to a room to recover. As soon as I seen the first doctor, he ain't waste no time. You paralyzed. You paralyzed. I ain't nobody trying to hear that. Start trying to move my leg. Man, for how long? <laughs> like, a week, two days? <laughs> what I gotta do? The way Will laughs so easily today, it's hard to imagine how he describes himself in the wake of the shooting. He says he gave up. He was bitter and beaten. He started rehab at the Daniel Drake Center for Post-Acute Care, but he couldn't be bothered to work with a therapist. For the first two weeks, I ain't do nothing. I don't want no nurses coming to my room. I'm banging the roughest, toughest music to make nurses not even want to come in there. They all, all they talk about is guns and killing people. And I know every time the nurse come in there, they talk about, yeah, 
I see why he got shot. The type of music he listened to, it. we done came in here three different times and then we heard a, a whole lot of gunshots. <laughs> Sound like you got a war going on in your room. He knows now it was a defense mechanism, he says. He was 23 and angry at himself, at the world, even at the nurses trying to help him. They'd come in singing, good morning, how are you? He'd reply, I'm pissed off, that's how I'm doing. At about the two-week mark during therapy, he asked if he could leave and was told no, not until you can take care of yourself. That jolted him awake. He started listening to the nurses and doing the exercises. His attitude took a 180, and after a month at Drake, he got to leave. But the truth was he was still angry and still a drug dealer. He kept selling. A year after his shooting, he dealt with one of the five bullets lodged inside of him working its way out of his body. He was back in the hospital for treatment, and he still didn't stop selling. Finally, he got arrested, or as they say on the streets, he... Caught a case. The case was for selling crack. In November 2008, Will was sentenced to 18 months in state prison. Once that sentence ended, he spent another four years in federal prison. He was released in August 2014. When I was in jail, laying on my bed, you know, you sit back and, you know, analyze your whole life. Like, and you see all the wake-up calls. You see all the, all the warning signs that you don't really pay attention to until it's too late. And, like, even though it was too late, I'm glad it really wasn't too, too late. Like, I, I, I caught on. He credits his prison stints with saving his life. That's where he got his GED and met some people who told him he was worth something. He even led exercise classes in prison, including step aerobics. He figured if he could lead a step aerobics class from a wheelchair, maybe he could do more than he thought. I feel like if I didn't go to jail, what would go be my next wake-up call? It probably would have been me going to sleep eternally, like... That's not to say he walked out of prison and stayed totally clean. His court records show he still stumbled a bit, but the charges were far less severe, usually traffic tickets. Most recently, he was ticketed in January 2017 for having less than 100 grams of marijuana on him. His slow turnaround was, in part, because he didn't see a future. Just having a spinal cord injury put him at higher risk for a whole host of problems, diabetes, high blood pressure, bladder cancer, osteoporosis. Respiratory disorders are the leading cause of death after a spinal cord injury, according to the University of Washington's Department of Rehabilitation Medicine. It's tough to care much about the repercussions of your actions when you feel like you're doomed either way. But a few years after his release, he started considering that he might have a future. And then he met Stan Ross. And what's your title here? My title here with the uh, city of Cincinnati is the uh, Serve Outreach Coordinator, which is the city initiative to reduce violence. Serve, that's an acronym spelled C-I-R-V, was launched specifically to address gun violence in Cincinnati. Remember those 2001 riots I mentioned? Those began after a 19-year-old unarmed black man named Timothy Thomas was shot and killed by a city policeman during an attempt to arrest him. Timothy had only faced misdemeanor charges, most of them traffic citations. Add to that an already tense atmosphere of alleged brutality and racial profiling, and the city erupted. 
Now, before those riots, the homicide rate in the city had been on the low side. Immediately after the riots, however, the number jumped 300 percent, and 2006 was especially bad for shooting deaths. Of the 88 homicides that year, all but nine involved firearms. CERV was created to combat those numbers by bringing together community leaders with law enforcement officers from multiple agencies. Stan Ross joined CERV two years ago. On a dry erase board near his desk at City Hall, he's drawn what's labeled the vicious blame cycle of violence. Stan talks in a language used a lot by people who work with trauma patients and violence survivors. He explains that violence is a cycle, and it starts with a family. Parents raised in violence pass down behaviors that beget more violence. Even kids who want to break that cycle have a hard time doing it mentally, because human beings are generally afraid of the unknown. He says trying new behaviors... It's kind of like trying to introduce somebody to food, and they'll look at it and say, I don't like that. You're talking to the mom of a preschooler, so I'm, okay. I'm right there. Yeah. yeah. And they've never tasted it. It just looks a certain way. And you fixed in your mind, you don't like it. So once you put it in your mouth, remember, I said I don't like this. In other words, change is hard, even if it might save your life. And I think that some people listening to these stories can be like, how was getting shot through the spine not your wake-up call? Mm. How are you selling drugs after that? Mm -hmm. So you, you deal with people who have trouble getting out of the environment. Why isn't there some magical light bulb over your head? At a certain point when he was shot and he survived it, and then now he's learned how to cope with it, and then he still went back into an environment where some of his peers said, we got you. Will and others might stop developing because of, you know, I feel like I'm stuck. Well, no, you're not stuck. You have to struggle to establish the truth. We all are out here, most of us are struggling to establish something. But when you know that there's a end to that particular goal, then there's joy in your struggling because you know you're struggling to establish something. And that's a, that can be a motivator for some of us. I see something, I know I gotta go through this, and I'm gonna go through it. But you have to see it. But you have to, that's, that's true. Okay. Stan met Will about a year ago through Cincinnati's Positive Influence Team, an organization he co-founded in 2011. The group largely focuses on reaching out to young people to reduce violence, but an arm of it also works with men and women re-entering society through the federal probation department. And the group is very supportive, but what it really is about is restorative justice. It is about the village. And we encouraged Will in terms of seeing the, the bright light that was in him. Will uh, have, have a lot of, I think, emotional fortitude in the sense of being able to keep a pretty good positive attitude in the midst of his uh, disabilities. However, he's aware of the surroundings that sometimes causes a person to be like a, a what do you call that particular, what is it? Is it the lizard? Is it the, that can turn, like if, if it's brown? It turns brown. Chameleon. Yeah, yeah, chameleon. Yeah, there you go. You know, sometimes people turn into those chameleons, and Will does that, I think, to protect himself for survival. But he sees the best that's in him, and so sometimes 
he's conflicted. This chameleon description resonates with me because on one hand, Will is charming and funny, like when he talks about his two kids. I got night and day. I got a little girl, like she's everything. Like she, she all get good grades in school. She a good athlete. She beautiful, respectful, quiet. My son, he's just a Tasmanian devil. And he think he's slicker than oil. Like, man, you know I was 12 years old before, right? I'm mean, telling that all the time. I took him bowling yesterday. He talking all the stuff in the world, right? He got, he bowl all gutter balls <laughs> and get mad at everybody else. Like, bro, I told you, slow down. Man, I got this daddy. Man. Gutter. He sounds a bit soft-hearted when talking about his son, especially. I gotta, that's what I really gotta get myself together for because I know he's looking at me more than anything and I, I need to catch him before it's too late. Like in 12, 12 is almost like the perfect age where you gotta hurry up and snatch him up. The chameleon part comes when he talks about what he's done in the past. Like when he mentioned he didn't help police catch a shooter and I asked, Do you actually know who it is though? Yeah, you just haven't told them. I don't need to know. He whispered, they don't need to know. Okay. Um, why? <laughs> why? It's already taken care of. Like, it's the yang and the yang of the world. Yeah. What does that mean, though? Is that person still around? I wouldn't think so. Not physically, anyways. As in a friend took care of it? I don't know what happened. I just know they don't be around no more. The team here at Aftermath is grateful to have Simply Safe as a sponsor of the show. In 2017, the Better Business Bureau heard more than 5,000 complaints about alarm companies. That puts home security in the top 10% of most complained about industries. You want to know how to fix home security? You do what the people over at Simply Safe did. They got rid of contracts and hidden fees. They work hard to earn their customers' business instead of relying on tricks and fine print. Simply put, Simply Safe is a company that treats you right. It's why they've got an A plus rating with the Better Business Bureau for 10 years running. I'm the proud owner of a Simply Safe system, and I'm here to tell you Simply Safe is what home security should be. You're getting the best protection, period. It's hard to think of something more valuable than the peace of mind that comes with knowing your home and family are safe. So, do what I did and go learn more about Simply Safe today at simplysafe.com/aftermath. That's simplysafe.com/aftermath to protect your home and family with an A+ home security system. simplysafe.com/aftermath It took several months before Stan Ross sensed that Will was serious about changing his lifestyle. Part of what convinced him was seeing Will push away some of the people that had long been in his circle. That wasn't easy, Will says. I have a very, what, exuberant personality, but that's what be making it so hard for people to kind of like let me go. As far as my old friends, like my past, like right now, like my phone been chirping and ringing and vibrating and everything. Like, I, I I said in the last 45 days, I keep on having to go back to this. Like, I done left so much in the past. Like, like as far as, like, friends, there was negative. 
Friends would show up knowing he was on federal parole and that he's not supposed to be drinking or smoking weed. He'd say, no, I don't want to get sent back, and they'd pressure him harder. All right. So that's how you feel now. I got to fall back, man, because y'all got to play by my, my rules. Like, man. And by me falling back, leaving a lot of negativity behind, it, can, it brought even more negativity. Oh, man, you think you better than us? Like, man, you... He'd say, hey, if you can't respect what I need to do now, I'll have to step away from you. He throws out another of his sayings. You know, like, man, you can't change the people around you, change the people around you, but that's what I had to do, and that was, like, one of the hardest things that I ever had to do, like, which is get away from a lot of people that was close to me. But some of these people, I didn't know since I was four or five years old, and I'm 36 now. That he's on the cusp of turning 40 is motivation for him, he says. And then he pulls out another saying. It took me a while, but better late than never. They say you're a fool at 40, you're a fool for life. I'm running out of time as we speak. He said this fast, so I'll repeat. They say if you're a fool at 40, you're a fool for life. And I'm running out of time as we speak. This mental shift has been drastic and fairly sudden. He says it's like a light switch was flipped inside of him. He's always been determined not to be limited by the shooting. That's why he hauls himself down his stairs every morning and wheels himself around town. He lives now with his girlfriend and her daughter, who greeted us at his apartment at the end of a quiet cul-de-sac. Hi. Hi. What's your name? China. Well, hello. Will says that if my reporting partner, Elizabeth Van Brocklin, and I had reached out to him even a month earlier, he probably wouldn't have been ready. Slowly, over the past year, he's come to decide that he could make something of himself if he tried. He began volunteering at Drake, the rehabilitation hospital where he was treated after his shooting. That was where, in 2005, he had been told he'd never walk again. When I was going to Drake, they told me it was over for me. Like, you could never walk again. So I, I really kind of, like, gave up for maybe, like, 10, 11, 12 years until, like, maybe four or five months ago, uh, I ran into a nurse, and she was trying to give me the, get these little stupid robot legs. Man, I don't want no robot legs. Man, I roll faster in my wheelchair. I'm like, no, well, I'm just going to give you somebody's number, and you call them. So Will called, and he started physical therapy. He began working on core strength and rebuilding enough muscle to help him stand upright again with assistance. I kept on elbowing. I was just saying, you did get somebody. I think it was Laura. I think it was. Like, oops. Oops. My bad. Oops. Let's see if I got up. There we go. You all right? Yeah. Cool. All the metal plates are now to keep in your knees. These were her? Yeah. Those robot legs might be in his future after all. I've been, I've been going there, man. I've been standing up. They got me on these braces. I, I got full function. I, I can control my bladder and everything. Like So I've been going to Premier Physical Therapy, and they've been getting me together for the last four or five months. And that's just ironic, because like I said, like I, had, I almost gave up on walking anyways. I was more content on being just like this for the rest of my life, not knowing how, to, how long the rest of my life is, because they say people with, in wheelchairs really don't, live past, what, five, six years after they gunshot. I'm 15 years in already and more healthier than I've ever been in my whole life. Appreciate your help. I got my walking shoes on today. 
In the aftermath, it's about more than Will walking again, though. He's got big plans. Next up, he aims to enroll at Cincinnati State. Right now, I'm just waiting for the financial aid so I can... I got my classes already, but I think I'm about to swap out from health and fitness technology to business management and just take the uh, personal fitness trainer as my minor. Are you excited about it? I'm very excited. Yeah. I can't wait. I can't wait to meet new people. I, I, I need some brand new friends, like brand new associates, man, that's positive. To... Next time on Aftermath. And then to see him offer a bunch of bullshit thoughts and prayers to the family of another school shooting after that happened, I got incredibly upset. Cecilia and I want to send our sincerest thoughts and prayers. Thoughts and prayers, thoughts, prayers. Karen and I send prayers. Our thoughts and prayers are with the victims and families there. Just frustrating that you're there talking about the issue and then meanwhile, one of the largest ones in American history is going on that same day. Aftermath is the result of a partnership between the Cincinnati Enquirer, part of the USA Today Network, and The Trace. It's reported by Amber Hunt and Elizabeth Van Brocklin, edited by Amy Wilson, and produced by Phil Didion and Amanda Rossman. Music is by Andrew Higley. Intern Brianna Rice assisted. Some episodes include additional sound courtesy of awesome local journalists. For full clip credits, go to our website. The podcast was supported in part by a fellowship from the DART Center for Journalism and Trauma at Columbia Journalism School. For videos, photos, and more, go to aftermathpod.com. You can follow us on Twitter at AftermathPod or find us on Facebook. Facebook.